yesterday was um, July 4th, and so this is our July 4th weekend, and um, as we see here at the Jersey Shore, we know it is July 4th as the crowds are coming back, and we notice that as well, and that is a good thing for our local economy, but, um, uh, you know, what is it that we, that we are um, called to remember uh, on a special occasion uh, every year when this rolls around, our Independence Day? And it's a day that marks uh, really the beginning of what this country has been known for and what is unique about us, the freedoms that we have, um, the rights that we have that our founding documents say are inalienable or unalienable, which simply means that no human government can give those to us, that they are given to us by God and by God alone, and uh, and so we want to remember um, just the um, the wonderful um, opportunities and freedoms that we have in this country. We've all been celebrating that in different ways, uh, but I'd like to pray. I want to pray for us as citizens um, of this great country, but also remembering that first and foremost, we are citizens of a different country, a different kingdom, a spiritual one that will one day be on this earth uh, in physical form, but we are citizens of heaven, and as such, we represent uh, the God who gives us our ultimate freedom. So let me pray, and if you would please, once again, bow your heads and close your eyes uh, in thankfulness and in reverence to our God uh, as I pray. Father, well, we, um, we are here gathered before you today, just as our ancestors did, celebrating our history and all of the great things that our country has achieved. We thank you specifically for the blessings of liberty, freedom for our generation, the previous generations, and for the generations to come. We thank you for our independence on this Independence Day for the peace and for all those who have bravely given their lives in the defense of justice and freedom. We thank you um, that your gracious and provident hand has given us so much. Yet we also know as a nation and as a people that we, um, it would be prudent of us to ask for forgiveness for our mistakes, but help us to continue to strive to be that more perfect union that our forefathers um, set out as our goal. Help us to be a generous and compassionate people. Our land is desperately in need of you, and our people are in need of you. So may we look only to you this Independence Weekend as we are reminded of how dependent we are on you. Use us, God, as your people to shine your light throughout this great land. May justice flow like rivers and righteousness, your righteousness, like a never-failing stream until the whole of our country is covered with your glory as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Amen. Um, we, uh, as I mentioned before, we are beginning a new uh, 
sermon series. And I always get excited when we are beginning a new series because there's a lot of reading and prep that goes into it. And, and see, I know a lot of things that you don't about where we're going. And so it excites me to see um, just what's coming ahead and what it's going to look like. But today, we begin a new series, something a book we haven't studied before, and that is the book of Psalms. And so very simply, we are going to call it the Summer in the Psalms. So we will spend the summer together journeying through the book of Psalms. Of course, being that there are 150 Psalms, we will not cover all of them, but just a representative uh, example of different Psalms. And uh, today, we're going to kind of spend some time uh, going over uh, an overview of the book, some background, so we have some context. But specifically, we're going to start with Psalm number 2. Now, Psalm 1 is a very well-known psalm, and it's kind of related in some ways to Psalm 2, but Psalm 2 is also very appropriate for us today, not only because it is 4th of July weekend, but also because of the state of our world and of our country. And this psalm, Psalm number 2, with just 12 verses, uh, speaks volumes to how we as God followers are to interpret what is happening and what is to come. Because isn't that what we all kind of ask when there is turmoil and strife and unrest and uneasiness uh, around us that we ask, God, what are you doing and what are you going to do? Isn't that common? I mean, that is part of our human nature to ask these questions. And so Psalm 2 is going to help us to, I think, gain a better, uh, clearer perspective on what God expects from us and to simply remind us, if nothing else, that God is sovereign no matter what's going on, that he has a plan, and that his plan will prevail. Can we say an, an amen to that? And he prophesies, meaning he foretells, he reveals to us in his word what is going to happen and what things are going to look like. And that kind of is the question that we ask of ourselves and of God when we go to his word. And so, you know, the book of Psalms is amazing and it's so unique because it is this collection of songs. And that word psalm actually means a poem or word set to music. And so... This is a collection of songs. And you know, um, back in the day, as we say, when I was in uh, college, and then for after that, for about 10 years, starting in college, I was in a band, and it was a Christian rock band, which, means, which meant that we played rock and roll music, and we, um, we wrote lyrics and songs um, that, that helped to bring attention to Jesus. Some of them were kind of worshipful, others uh, we're really sort of more from uh, from a place of questioning. Uh, some were were you know just kind of like heart cries to God, and some of them were kind of just about from confusion, not understanding what was going on in life. And there's a lot of emotion when it when a song is written. And so in in the Book of Psalms, you're going to see like every emotion come out. You're going to see psalms that are just pure praise to God. And you're going to see psalms that, that deal with um, difficulties and some just crying out to God and some questioning God for what he's doing or what it seems like he is not doing. 
There are psalms that are, are um, written by King David, and there's others that are uh, written by people we don't even know. But it really overall shows the heart of a person responding to their circumstances. And it's a wonderful reminder, church, that as we read through the book of Psalms together, that we have this beautiful freedom in Christ to come before God just as we are. We can come before God in any circumstance, whether we're feeling good and everything is right in our world, or we are confused or angry or disgruntled or just sad and depressed and crying our eyes out. We can come to God because there is a psalm for every one of those circumstances. And so we will see a representative uh, selection of that. But, you know, I loved writing songs, and uh, I don't really do that anymore, not in a band. But we were in a band for about 10 years, and we would play all over, uh, up and down the, the East Coast at colleges and battle of bands and clubs and cafes. And, and we had a great time, and one time we even got shut down because we were playing in a, in a place they didn't know we were a Christian band. And so halfway through the third song... The sound guy kind of caught on to what we were singing about, and he just flicked a switch and turned our sound off and said, you guys can go. And I have to say, we went outside, and we thought that was so cool that we just got kicked out as they were like, yeah, rock and roll, right? We got kicked out of this, this, this cafe. But, but, you know, our whole intent was to bring glory to God, and we were doing it in a unique way through a certain kind of music, but all different types of songs, you know, and and at the time, I would have said that the songs were inspired because God was inspiring me, his word, people around me were inspiring me, but of course, the book of Psalms is inspired by God. These are poems, these are songs of praise, they are hymns, they are very, they're simply just heart cries to God that are truly inspired, divinely inspired by God for us. So I want to give you just, just some, uh, some brief uh, bullet points of background about Psalms, and then we're going to get right into Psalm number two, right? So the book of Psalms, if you didn't realize, was written about over a thousand year time frame from about 1400 B.C., to about four or 500 B.C. So for over those thousand years, these songs were written and collected. And it wasn't until they were all done, right, that, that they were sort of put into place. We're not sure why they were grouped the way they are. They're, they're grouped into five different books, but not by theme or by writer, because there's all different themes and the writers are kind of spread out. But traditionally, they were... Um, divided into five books, some, some of the, the Jewish tradition and history, it's not biblical, but some of the Jewish tradition says it's to represent the, the five books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible of Moses. Uh, but in any case, it's broken into five books, uh, but all different kinds of, of writing throughout those uh, 150 Psalms, 150, uh, written over a thousand years, and that spans the time frame from Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, the oldest psalm we have, to about the time of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you ever read them, and so about four or 500 B.C. So that's, the, as a general idea, the time frame that psalms were written. Can you imagine that? I mean, a thousand-year time span, like we can't even, like we don't have a context for that, do we? I mean, how old is our country, right? And we're thinking like a thousand years, 
And these were written, inspired by God, different writers, and then collected under the, the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit uh, so many thousands of years ago and put into the book that we have. Um, and uh, many or most of these psalms were comprised and, and kind of created the songbook of the ancient Hebrews and uh, the early church uh, was sort of their worship songs. And we do songs that are directly out of the, the psalms, words, phrases, whole psalms put to, to music. And that's happened, church, throughout generations as new forms of music became popular in, in churches, local churches saw the value of certain kinds of music. We might call it contemporary music, whatever it was for that time. And we have rich traditions of other types of music. And these psalms were used by worship leaders and songwriters throughout history uh, to to put down uh, and to represent their um, thoughts, their ideas, their heart cries, heartfelt cries of worship to God expressions of love and devotion and thanksgiving, but also sometimes of frustration, confusion, longing, and simply just crying out to God. It's a collection of songs from the heart that reminds us that there is always only, and this is important, church, there's always only one God, but many, many ways for us to express the nature of our relationship with him, and to respond to him with every emotion in all of life's circumstances. Now that alone should be encouraging to us, isn't it? That no matter what's going on in our lives, we can open the book of Psalms and it is represented there, somehow in some way. It's beautiful poetry. Some of it rhymes, a lot of it doesn't. Remember it was written in Hebrew, right? Right? So it's different. They have different ways of, of writing their poetry. But yet when we read it in, in our English uh, version, we get a beautiful sense of the people behind it and the, um, uh, the heart that is coming out from, from these words. It is the longest book of the Bible by far, 150 psalms. Uh, it is, um, there's 73 of them attributed to David. Sometimes we might think David wrote all the Psalms. He did not. He wrote 73, as we know, uh, were attributed to King David. Two of them to his son Solomon. Twelve to uh, a family called Asaph. So maybe in the beginning of some of them you've seen from the family of Asaph. So 12 of them were written by the family Asaph, maybe there was a family band, I don't know. And and they were uh, called the family Asaph, you know. Eleven were written by the, the, to the sons of Korah, so another sort of uh, family group there. One by a man named Haman and another by a man named Ethan. And then there are 50 of them, believe it or not, of the 150, there are 50 psalms that, don't, that do not designate an author or have no uh, indication of who the author is. So we know the author for 100 of them, but 50 we do not. But this is an, this is an important note. Of all the hundred psalms that we do have an author for, they were all written by a Levite or a priest with only the exception of Moses and Solomon. Because King David was part of overseeing the worship in the temple. So think about that. So of, of all of those, I guess that would mean that 98 of, those, of the 150 psalms 
were written by worship leaders, by those who were specifically called of God and put into a place of leadership to write songs for the people, to be a worship director, a worship leader, a songwriter, a poet that would then have music put to that song. Uh, And that's important because other than Solomon and Moses, Solomon wrote two, Moses one uh, of the Psalms, that all the rest were written by people who were specifically um, given talent and skill and uh, leadership ability to write and to write these songs for the people to bring their expressions of worship to God. So simply put, the book of Psalms is a collection of prayers, poems, and hymns that help us focus our thoughts on God. Because, you know, I say that often, right, that when we gather in uh, worship together that that we want to we want to come to God in prayer first to, to allow the Holy Spirit to prepare us, to prepare our mind, to prepare our heart, to do what? To bring our attention to him, our focus on him. Because worship, as the Psalms help us do, worship is simply our response to God. It's our response to God's goodness and his grace. And so worship is how we respond. And these Psalms particularly were Poems that were written, words that were written to be put to music so people could sing them in worship to their God. Uh, God is the same Lord in all of the Psalms, but again, we respond to him in different ways. We can bring all of our feelings and emotions to God, no matter how negative or complaining they may be, but we can rest assured that he will hear and understand us, especially, church, especially when we are overwhelmed by the cares of this world, as Psalm 2 will remind us. There's different types of psalms. The last thing I'll mention as a, uh, as a background, and we'll get into Psalm 2. Um, there's uh, People throughout history have given different um, uh, types and, and you know, titles to different uh, kinds of psalms, but there's generally five that are agreed upon. One would be a simple song of praise, a hymn, a song of praise, like Psalm 8, uh, verse 1, Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? A lot of these are familiar. That is an example of a simple song of praise. So that is one type of song of psalm that we will look at in our series. Uh, number two, psalms of lament. These are those that kind of are when the psalmists are complaining, expressing sadness uh, to God, grief, or even complaining against God's enemies. An example would be Psalm 3, which starts this way. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up or many are rising up against me? That is a psalm representative of those of lament, of complaining. There's the royal psalms. Those are the ones that were used either by kings or in the court of a king. Um, And uh, Psalm 1850 would be a good example. Uh, It says this, uh, Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Um, There are messianic psalms. It's not traditionally given its own sort of um, title, but there are many psalms that are messianic. In fact, Psalm 2 that we're going to look at in a moment, is also partly messianic, which means it, um, it uh, foreshadows or points to the Messiah, Jesus. There are psalms of thanksgiving. 
Uh, simple thanksgiving to God, Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And then the, there are psalms of wisdom. Psalm number 1, good example of that, 1 through 3. It says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. Right? Uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. For he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. A wisdom psalm. So we have uh, at least five different types of psalms. There's other types that are often noted that kind of fall into these five categories. There's what we call imprecatory psalms. That's not a word we use a lot. But imprecatory psalms are those that are pleading with God for him to bring his judgment on their enemies. There are songs of, uh, psalms of ascent, those that are written um, and sung on the journey up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits up on a hill, and so pilgrims to the holy city would have to go up to Jerusalem, and they would sing songs on their way there about the great city and about their great God. They are called songs of ascent. Because ascent means what? To rise, to go up. And then also there are, again, as I mentioned, messianic psalms. So there are many psalms that in there talk about the coming Messiah. So uh, Psalm 1 is very well known, but Psalm 2 is the one that we're going to look at. And one of the reasons is this, church, and I find this very interesting. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. I mean, the New Testament writers, and of course Jesus himself, they quoted a lot of the Old Testament. Psalm 2 is the psalm most often quoted of all the psalms by the writers of the New Testament. And a part of that is because it talks about rebellion of nations, and it talks about a coming Messiah and the sovereignty of God. And the fact that God has appointed one final king to be ruler over all, and that day will come, and I believe it's coming soon. So this psalm number two that I'm going to read now, it reminds us that sinful people will always be fighting for control that rightfully belongs to God. Did you catch that? Did you kind of feel like your heart sink a little bit, like this is kind of talking about me? That this psalm will remind us all <clears throat> that as sinful people, we will always in some way fight for control that rightfully belongs to God. But also it tells us that God has a plan to deal with such rebellion and that it is in the best interest of nations and us individually to recognize his sovereignty now before it's too late. So here is Psalm number two. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as 
For me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. For the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And it ends with this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, what do we make of the world today, church? What on earth is going on around us? How do we make sense of it all? Should we be worried or fearful or maybe angry or indignant? Should we be consumed by all of the news or just ignore it? You know, it's become an overused phrase, but... For good reason, we are living in unprecedented times. You know, we just finished a series called Confident Living in Uncertain Times. Church, how do you feel? How do you feel after that series? Do you feel confident or still a little confused and concerned? Well, of course, that's normal. God knows our circumstances. But as I said, the Psalms can remind us that we can talk to God from the heart in any circumstance In life, especially one as troubling as we have right now. And remember what God says elsewhere in Scripture. There is nothing new under the sun. How appropriate that truth is for us today. But Psalm 2 kind of gives us some direction and an answer about how we um, deal with the world today. See, King David, who was writing this, This being a royal psalm, remember that was one of the five categories, a royal psalm, King David saw the rebellion around him. He saw the rebellious nations and he was writing this to kind of warn them, but to tell them that God has a plan, that he is in control and he will have his way, that nothing slips by the sovereign God. So I just want to break it down just briefly and give some applications. So first, in verses 1 to 3, he's basically saying the nations have rebelled against God. And he is asking this question, why do these nations around me rage? Why do these people's plot, notice he says, in vain? He's looking around saying these people have no clue. They don't know the kind of God that they are up against. He's saying, why do all these nations try to gain control back from God, who was the one who gave it to them in the first place, and they're doing it all in vain? And he says, they're getting together to try to plot together in vain. He says, the kings of the earth, they set themselves and rulers together to take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, who would be God's anointed ruler and king, but the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah. And so David knows that. He knows the promise, the Davidic covenant that God made with him, that David, there would be descendants of David always on the throne whenever there was a king on the throne, that there would be a descendant of David. Is not Jesus Christ a descendant of David? So that means one day he will rule 
on this earth, on the throne in Jerusalem, the throne of David, in David's holy city, Jerusalem, Jesus, the anointed one, is king and will be king, now of a spiritual kingdom, but will be one day of a kingdom on this earth, this earth that God the Father had given to him. And so David is writing, yes, about his personal situation and the nations around him, but also about God's anointed, the coming Messiah, and simply meaning for us that all have rebelled against God, not just the rulers of those particular nations, but all people, just as them, have rebelled. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say some. It doesn't say just world leaders. It says all. But that is because Satan, the enemy of God and our enemy, is behind all rebellion. Do you remember the story about his fall from grace, his fall from heaven? He took a third of the angels with him. We now call them demons, his followers, the followers of Satan, that he fell because of pride, which is still our basest sin. But all people have followed in that rebellion, starting with Adam and Eve. You remember the question that Satan in the guise of the serpent asked Eve, basically putting a seed of doubt in her mind, did God really say you would die? Right then was the beginning of the attack on truth. And it was the beginning of rebellion of this world and its people. It was against authority. Look, church, I think we can all understand from our personal lives that not only has there always been attack on truth, but there has always been, listen, a struggle for authority. All right, There has always been that struggle among humans since Adam and Eve for who is in control, us or God. Who do you think wins that struggle and that argument every time? God does, but yet we still fall into that. We might know up here God is sovereign, God's in control, just like David is saying, but yet sometimes we take parts of our lives, we say, God, you can have this part. It's easy for me to give control of this, but this other part... I kind of like being in control of this because I think I'm doing a much better job than you are, God. I'm getting more pleasure because my plan kind of, you know, is better for me. We, we act that way. We don't say it, but we act that way. But that's because we are, rebe- listen, that's because we are rebelling against authority. Parents, did you ever learn that because you have kids? And if you don't have kids, you know, remember when you were a kid, Right? Oh, that perfect little child who was never rebellious against his, his parents. Because that is, when we say we're born sinful, uh, sinful, you know what it means? We're born in rebellion. We are born with that rebellious spirit against God because he has ultimate authority, but we want it. We want that authority. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? What were the people uh, of God doing, these people that God created? God said, go and scatter, create nations. And so what did the people do? Just the opposite. Now let's get together. Let's be homogeneous. Let's build a tower so we can show how great we are and bring glory to ourselves. So God said, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to get my way. And so he confuses the languages so that people had to spread out geographically from that place so they could go with the people that spoke the language they understood. And they would go and they spread out. That church was the beginning of nations beginning of nations. 
And so did they then say, okay, God, from now on we're going to, um, we're going to put you as rightful ruler and all of our leaders, our, our, um, our kings and our governors and our presidents and everybody, they're all going to be God-fearers? No, because they still took what with them when they scattered? They took a, a prideful heart. And they took that heart of stone with them. And so that's where we have David writing about nations warring against other nations, nations gathering together to war against God. And David looks around and says, how futile is that? How foolish is that, that they are doing that? And so that's what um, David is starting out with. And, but then in verses 4 to 9, sort of the meat of this, this psalm, David reminds everybody that's reading that God is in control. Verses 4 to 9, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, it doesn't mean God is mocking the people or that he likes rebellion. When it says that God is, sits in heaven and laughs, it simply means this. It simply shows how foolish we are to think that we could wrest control from a, an all-sovereign God. That's what he's saying. He's, he's picturing God as laughing from heaven. And it says, he will then speak to them in his wrath because God will have his way. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It means David in the context, but also means the coming Messiah. And then here's an interesting thing in verse 8. Look what it says in verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What David is doing there is a certain writing style. And again, the Psalms are poems, all kinds of writing styles. It is David taking the, the, the voice of God as if God was speaking to, to Jesus, God the Father speaking to God the Son, right? And God the Father saying, Jesus, just ask me. When you're ready, ask me, and I will make the nations yours and the ends of the earth your possession. Church, you know why that's so awesome? Because that's what we're waiting to happen. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for our Messiah, Lord Jesus, who said he would come back, to know that it's the rightful time to then go to the Father and say, Father, give me my inheritance. Give me my inheritance. I'm ready. And that's the moment that he returns for the church and sets in motion what we call the end times. The rapture, then the tribulation, then that thousand-year kingdom that Jesus has to rule on earth Because he is a king and there is a throne that is going to be waiting for him, the throne of David. And see, the earth was given to people, it's given to Adam and Eve to have dominion over. But who usurped that authority and that dominion from them? But Satan did. But God right away, remember back in Genesis, God right away said, one day there will be a redeemer. There is the anointed, the king who will come and rule on this earth the way it was intended. So that has to happen because is that happening right now? Do all the nations and peoples of this earth look at Jesus as their rightful ruler and king? No, they do not. But church, one day they will. And what David is saying is this. And he quotes it here. Um, He is saying that, uh, verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. How does that sound? Now, that doesn't sound good, right? Even more reason for us to spread the gospel, church, to let people know about salvation through Christ and through Christ alone. Because we see the trends. We see what's happening. We know that we are quickly approaching that time 
We don't set dates because Jesus says nobody knows the time, but we know it could happen at any moment. We believe that here, that it is imminent, the Lord's return for his church to set in motion all of those end time events. But what does David do? He reminds the people that God will have his way whether the nations of the earth recognize Jesus voluntarily or he has to rule them with a rod of iron. Now, isn't it easier for us? We remember as kids, or if we have kids, isn't it work out better for everybody when you, do, when you submit and are obedient voluntarily rather than with that rod of iron? See, but David is saying God is sovereign no matter what, and he'll have his way. He wants people to voluntarily love him and come to him in faith. But in the end, when that offer of salvation is no more, he says he will rule with a rod of iron. It will be much more difficult than And so, in Revelation 19, the Apostle John describes the vision of the Lord Jesus in that great day. Look what it says in Revelation 19. 15 to 16. From his mouth comes, a, this is describing Jesus, by the way. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. What's that name? King of kings and Lord of lords, at the end of Christ's thousand-year reign. Now, that was the end of the, the, the quote. At the end of Christ's thousand-year reign, here's what's going to happen. Satan and all who followed him will be thrown into the lake of fire. Well, they will be tormented forever and forever. See, Jesus will come back as king. He came first as savior, and he will come back as king. You will come back to judge and to rule and to reign. See, that is God's plan for dealing with the rebellious man and with Satan and his forces. God has a plan which will come to pass. And finally, we must submit to God and his anointed while there is time. The last two verses, he basically, David is saying, look, time is of the essence. He says, now for, therefore, kings, be wise and be warned. Serve the Lord with fear Kiss the Son, which means come into a relationship with him, worship him, lest he be angry and you perish in that way. For here it is, for his wrath is quickly kindled, which means it's going to happen at any time, church. So that should be our motivation to share that hope that we were singing about earlier. And let us not miss the very last phrase in this verse. It gives us hope. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Can I say that again? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. After all of that, King David says, if you just take refuge in God and stick close to him, you will be blessed. You won't have to worry about all that I just wrote. But it also says that there is this sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency to it. And you know, the only peace that this world can ever know is the peace that only Christ can give. Do you agree with that? World chaos and war will only increase as his coming draws near. But let's remember, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what we can do, churches, take refuge in him. Be aware of all that's happening around you, but live and proclaim the gospel because the time is near, but also take refuge in him 
and encourage others to do the same. Now, we, as we move to the conclusion of our time together, um, we're going to take communion. You'll hear the music playing um, as you, I give you just a, a few moments to quietly reflect. Here's what we reflect upon. When we take communion together, it is one of two um, commandments or ordinances that we say that Jesus gave to the church. And it's really important. One is baptism and one is communion. They are both symbolic. They are both symbolic of things that Christ has done for us. In baptism, it is us being washed clean in his death and then his resurrection, being dead to sin and alive in Christ. Communion, in a similar way, is what Jesus gave us in the Last Supper that he instituted when he gathered, listen, when he gathered his disciples for the last time, knowing that the next day that he would be tortured and crucified and go to Calvary and to the cross, that he gathered his disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he broke bread and he passed the cup and he said the bread represents his body, which is given for them. And the blood represents, uh, the cup represents the blood that he was about to shed a few hours later. And he did it willingly, church. He did it willingly for us because of his heart of love for us, his children, the children of the living God. You know, his work on that cross of Calvary was a work of victory. It was a spiritual victory which secures an ultimate victory over sin and death for us. But it's also a reminder, and this communion is a reminder, the cup and the bread of what it cost him to secure that victory. But that it was free for us, but to set us free. See, we have freedoms in this country, freedoms that we should cherish and never take for granted, but the greatest freedom is found in not being a citizen of any particular country or kingdom of earth, but of a heavenly kingdom that will one day soon be on earth as it is in heaven. If you are here with us today and you don't yet know that freedom, can I please share that with you once again? You've heard me say it in different ways today. But in God's eyes, we all fall short of his glory, which means none of us, not one of us here, can do enough good things, can say enough things to God that will earn our reconciliation to him because sin has separated us from our creator. And God, our creator, has said there is only one way to make restitution for that, only one way to be reconciled to God, that's what we call salvation, and that is by believing, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one and only who could atone for that sin. It means that Jesus was the only one who was capable of dying on the cross because he led a perfect life, the only one who ever led a sinless life. Therefore, he was that perfect lamb to be given up for us. When we believe in that, the Bible says, when we believe in Jesus as the only way for salvation of our personal sin, it means that we believe it to be true and we put our faith and trust in it. That belief in Jesus to be Savior, that means at that moment we are saved and we have moved from death to life.
It's spiritual. And one day it will be a reality when he returns for us. If you have gathered here today, that is what we call the gospel. The good news of the grace of God that we can do nothing because he did everything. And as a free gift to us, we simply reach out in belief and faith and say, thank you. I believe it in faith that Jesus died for my sin. And that he is the only one that could do that. At that moment of belief, you are now called a child of God. And you have a new heart. You have a new spirit that has now reconnected you with your, with your creator. If that is a prayer that you want to pray, is if that is a decision that you want to make, do that now between you and God. Let me know after that you have done that. The church, if you're here today and you're already a believer in Jesus, you can always take that step of what we might say recommitting or rededicating your life to Jesus. Your salvation has been secured already because of your belief, but perhaps you realize that time is drawing near. And as David said, the nations are warring against nations, and you see things happening, you say, Jesus, would you help me? Help me to be more devoted and more committed as a worshiper, but also as a proclaimer of the good news of the gospel, to be that salt and light that he wants us to be.